Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. Uh, today, we're talking about Microsoft and Microsoft licensing. On the podcast today, we have uh, a new analyst joining us at the ITAM View, David Foxen. Hi, David. Hi, Martin. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, yourself? Not bad, thank you. And we have two esteemed guests from the Microsoft licensing space. We have Piers McDonnell. Hello, Martin. And we have Paul DeGroote. Hello, Martin. Good to be here. Paul, if I could ask you just to give the listeners a quick introduction to you and your company. Yes, uh, my name is Paul DeGroote. I'm the president of Pica Communications, and I also work as the senior consultant for software licensing advisors. Well, we provide uh, negotiations assistance around enterprise agreements, uh, focusing primarily on what the customer requirements are. We do a lot of sort of deep analysis of their actual requirements and then design a licensing program that is going to allow them to meet those requirements, stay compliant and save money. We, I teach training classes in Microsoft licensing. I have three day, uh, three day course set up. It's probably the most complete course out there that covers not only Microsoft licensing rules, but negotiations. So I have some classes coming up next fall in Boston, New Orleans, and San Francisco. I do general audit defense. You get the letter saying, uh, we're going to come in there in 30 days. Uh, We can help you navigate through that and ensure that you do not face penalties or licensing requirements that aren't necessary. And I act as a general Microsoft resource. So I have retainer agreements with a number of companies. Uh, They can call me when they have a question and I answer the question. Those are the primary areas that I work in. Great, thank you. And Pierce, could you do the same? Could you give a quick introduction to yourself and your uh, company, what you do? Certainly. Um, My name is Pierce McDonald from SureDatum. I'm founder and operating officer and uh, we provide uh, license optimization services. Uh, we specialize mainly in data center, uh, focusing on Oracle, Microsoft, and IBM. Uh, the services we typically provide would be clearly preparing companies for their uh, enterprise agreements, but I guess where we would distinguish ourselves would be in very large, complex environments where you'd have multiple data centers or where you've got very distributed uh, desktop environments, typically over the, the 30 or 40,000 uh, clients. Great, thanks, Pierce. In terms of Microsoft licensing, I'm just looking at a recent news piece, and I will share this in the show notes that goes with the podcast. And it's on the Redmond Channel Partner website from the 5th of May. And uh, it's a it's a Flexera and IDC study, which suggests that Microsoft is the most aggressive software auditor. If you look at the detail, I think it's slightly misleading to say that they're the most aggressive because it's actually it's the, the most frequent auditor is what the article is actually saying. I wouldn't necessarily say they're the most aggressive, but anyway, they're very prevalent in the market. They're doing their reviews. They're doing their audits. So to start off with, if I could come to you first, Paul, what's your view on the current reviews and audit activity from Microsoft? I don't think there's any question that they have really increased the number of audits and the customers that they are asking audits of. At one point, an enterprise agreement was 
kind of a vaccination against any aggressive auditing from Microsoft. The assumption was, well, the customer can use anything they like and so on. Not only is that rule gone, uh, they are every customer that we have, including a customer with a, a global organization with 120,000 seats, is getting frequent requests from Microsoft to do some kind of SAM engagement of some kind. There, what's very irritating is that many of these come up about six months before the end of your enterprise agreement. There is a process in the enterprise agreement to handle issues like this. It's called a true-up. And unfortunately, there are actually two verification clauses in most people's EEAs. And the, the friendliest one is the true-up in the language that appears in your enrollment. But there's another section of your contract, the business agreement, that says, oh, we can drop in uh, anytime on 30 days notice, uh, send an auditor in, and you'll have to pay a penalty if you're just a little bit under uh, under licensed. At any rate, sometimes they're fishing for numbers simply to fill out their sales projections. That's true of any that are occurring for agreements that end in June. But there's a lot of this going on. It's a no-holds-barred kind of engagement, typically, and every customer is vulnerable to it every customer we're running into is getting requests for these SAM engagements it makes no difference how big you are or what kind of agreement you have so just digging into that a, a second Paul so you said the EA rule has gone so it, are you referring is that is that like a, a gentleman's agreement that they didn't do it or are you saying that this is a new change that the 30-day notice thing has come in well the nature of the EA the you know in general the idea of the enterprise agreement and this this actually by the way is one of the main reasons that people sign the enterprise agreement so this is not a trivial issue they sign the enterprise agreement because during the time of that enterprise agreement they don't have to worry about tracking assets of any software that's on their ea if they go over if they're using too much of it all of that gets swept up in the true process at every anniversary of the agreement and if they owe microsoft more money they pay microsoft more money at their their discount level, it's all nicely organized, it's all a relatively simple process to, to handle, it's very predictable, and that's the process, and that is a major reason that people sign enterprise agreements. Microsoft is throwing that out the window and saying, oh yeah, but in between times, we may come after you too. Not just, so So you may be doing this twice a year. We have one customer who's now on their, on their second request for uh, uh, via one of their affiliates for a SAM agreement and there uh, are a SAM engagement and their agreement ends in September. I mean, they are literally four months away from the true up window and Microsoft wants them to undertake a SAM engagement, which the customer is paying us to do because they don't want to use the free SAM engagement from Microsoft. So this is just uh, a lot of overhead for companies. Pierce, thoughts on that? Paul's hit uh, some of the key points there on the head. And there is there's a kind of a, I guess, a bit of a myth about the true up that, oh, it's just a chance to um, settle any differences. It is an audit by another name. And uh, I guess it's each EA has it in it. It's an annual thing that you have to do. 
And when you've got partners, VARs involved, they are taking this as an opportunity to increase sales. So that's part of the reason it's increasing more. There's just more pressure to make more sales. But another trend that's kind of happening too is if it's used essentially as a blocking tackle to prevent customers leaving enterprise agreements also. And uh, if there's any hint of that, I'm sure Paul would also agree, you, the client can pretty much expect an, an audit within three months if that uh, is communicated in any way. How would that work in practice? In practice, they will literally, they will just have a general audit and they will come in and say, well, we're now checking just in general that you're using our licensed product. And some of the grace, I guess, or the credit you generate by having an existing AA goes out the door and uh, you will have your a partner or a, a Microsoft partner or similar basically just give you a formal audit. True ups are built within the contract, within the enterprise agreement itself, but you can have an official one, which is just, uh, and again, it's a no-holds-barred intrusion, and that's where we get involved in defending these things. But the I'm other just, factor, though... So, oh, yes, so, so, go, I'm, go I'm just, I'm just, the point you made was that, that, that it was used as a blocking tackle so that the person, the, yes. the organisation, sorry, um, retains the EA. So how is it that they end up retaining it? What will happen is uh, when you come to, you know, within six months, three months before end of EA, they will, the account manager will come in, have a discussion with you. And if you give an indication that, oh, we're looking at Google possibly as a competitive uh, to drive the price down, or just that there's a hint that you might be exiting, then you'll be one, one you'll be reminded of this. And I've had several customers who actually said, we are concerned about the impact. It's not that they feel that, oh, we have, we're not compliant. It's just that it's a huge demand on our organization to just to defend an audit. And particularly if you're doing very large sites, you know, um, Paul and I would be working with customers with several thousand servers, maybe could be up to 100,000 desktops. And it's quite an undertaking to actually just simply defend the audit to prove that you're clean. And very often it's just uh, checkbook compliance. It's just easier and you just renew the EA and go from there. Well, the other, well, just the other factor as well is there's a significant change in technology sets going on at the moment. And the, the most obvious one, of course, moving from sockets to uh, core-based licensing. But also you've got the push, and I do say this is a push for customers to move to the cloud and couple that too with the device-based licensing. All of these things together are, are opportunities essentially or open the door for partners or Microsoft to question your deployment of licensing and essentially create new sales opportunities. Um, and the, I've had situations where, particularly on the data center side where we specialize a lot, where customers are getting uh, audited and getting essentially pushed towards uh, this as to trade in their soccer based licenses and to move to uh, to move away from CALS and to move to core based and basically pretty much told in no uncertain terms if you don't move that direction you are going to be in like you're going to have a compliance gap here so uh, that'll be another I guess outcome from the uh, from what's causing uh, the uptake in orders or the increase in them okay and this is a this is a question for anybody. Is could we just get some of the terminology right here? Because you've said that the EA clause is an audit by another name, but we also have the um, incentive program whereby uh, Microsoft will pay a partner to do a almost like a, a customer blessed audit. Could you perhaps describe your thoughts around that and the, and the differences? I mean, what, what's the the size of the volume of these things in, in comparison? I'll comment on that first, Martin. Basically, the incentive program essentially is where partners of ours who have got uh, who support Microsoft in assessing, and I suppose 
yes. There are SAM assessment programs or assistance programs, and uh, there's essentially, depending on the size of the contract, there's an amount of a budget given to assist the partner in doing the work. And then, of course, there is a, a percentage of any compliance gap. It's treated as a new sale, so therefore there'll be revenue there as well. Really, what you're talking about here is encouraging, uh, giving partners a vested interest to maybe be a slightly more, I guess, aggressive uh, when it comes to these SAM engagements, and uh, it's essentially encouraging more of them. Uh, Paul, what's your thoughts on that? Yes, we, we generally discourage people from accepting those engagements. Part of the deal there is that all of the data that the partner collects is going to go back to Microsoft. Uh, we've recently done some work examining what data actually goes back to Microsoft. So, you know, while, while Microsoft's um, assessment and planning tool, MAP, is a pretty benign product and a very effective product, we like to use it uh, in many circumstances. If you send the raw MAP files back to Microsoft per their direction, you are undoubtedly going to get a very large bill. You're going to be defending a lot of stuff like uh, people who left the company, where you know licenses for them, and Map also picks up a whole bunch of other detail, things like email addresses of all your employees and so on are hidden in some of those files. If you have a partner like uh, I won't name any names, but um, say um, one of the accounting or uh, one of the big consulting firms come in and run scripts on your system. By the time they're done doing that, Microsoft will know everything that you're doing, not only with Microsoft, but with Oracle, VMware, Adobe, everybody. These scripts are uh, not at all selective in focusing just on the stuff that you have to license from Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft knows a huge amount about your entire infrastructure with this. We, we discourage that. In some cases, we'll have a, a customer and we'll say, look, Get the auditor in with your technical teams, look at all those scripts, and find everything there, and it's substantial, that is not related to Microsoft licensing, and take it out of the script, if, if you even go that far. But generally, we prefer to uh, collect the data ourselves, have a look at the data, make sure that many simple things, like declaring the production state of servers. MAP doesn't know what the production state of servers are. And if the data goes back, and Microsoft says, yeah, you have 700 uh, servers here, and you know 100 of them are used by your developers, and another 100 or so are used in a test environment. Um, some are run running on virtual machines covered by a host licensing. My Microsoft will just look at the biggest number and say, that's your bill. And oh, by the way, you don't have this many servers. What that does is, you know, it's defensible. The customer can say, okay, let me explain and can significantly reduce this. But to do that, you have to understand a lot about Microsoft licensing, a lot about how complex server infrastructures are licensed and so on. And, you know, we've been very successful in lopping some of those down by extraordinary amounts. I, I mean, I'm talking in some cases, 90%. We can eliminate 90% of what it appears initially to be a shortfall before the data goes to Microsoft. We just don't want to put the customer in the position of having to fight with them to get rid of that 90%, which is all all fine. We're not, there are no tricks involved in this. This is These are situations where assigning the proper licenses in the proper way can substantially reduce your costs. 
perfectly compliant with Microsoft's rules, but Microsoft takes the raw data and to expose a, a customer to a great vulnerability. So at any rate, we don't like these uh, partner-led engagements. Too much information goes back to Microsoft. Paul makes a very good point there with regard to the scripts and the tools. Um, MAP and SCCM, they were designed for uh, and the other tools indeed. Have one have certain functions. They bring back far more data than uh, is required and that you want to share. But also, uh, what can be deeply frustrating on these partner-letting uh, SAM engagements is the pessimistic view they take of licensing. Like I was recently in a, in a project where the Active Directory was just taken as you know cut off at 90 days. It had 60,000 uh, users in it, but the HR department were able to actually show the records that they only had 40,000 staff. Yet the partner insisted on the 60,000 as the opening number. Now, as Paul mentioned, you can argue these things down, but that really is a, a very frustrating thing for a client to go through, to have to argue what would seem very obvious uh, to anybody uh, looking on that, you know, we only have 40,000 uh, employees. How can uh, we, you be uh, hitting us for more than 60,000? Wouldn't you argue that if, if somebody had the wherewithal and uh, maturity to be able to prove those points with good data, then they probably didn't need the review in the first place, did they? Well, what, you comes down to, what it comes down to here is having to argue these very technical points and ultimately they, the, the clients end up coming to the likes of Paul and I to defend against these partner-led engagements because they don't have the deep knowledge and they shouldn't have to have it in a lot of cases. Also, you're looking at, I guess it's the, where the view of the world will be when, when I guess an independent consultant prepares a, a submission and an effective license position. They will look into things like the exact numbers. They will look into the status of the servers, the, stat, the what exactly are they, de are they developers or are they production? And similarly for the desktop estate, they will, uh, they will look into how that's deployed. And they will essentially um, you know, downgrade rights, upgrade rights, that kind of thing. They will go that extra mile, whereas a partner at SAM, uh, or sorry, an audit essentially, they will take a pessimistic view. They'll just, they won't bother to optimize. In fact, if anything, they will ignore uh, where you might have access that has upgrade rights and they won't, they won't bother to go that distance for you. And that's where I'd have issue with it. They simply take a very, very simple view, a very pessimistic view, and they say, oh, they must be in it. there must be a compliance gap, mainly because they have to make money. So is, is there, have we got a view in terms of the volume of these uh, you know, partner-led audits or incentive audits versus EA contractual uh, reviews and true-ups? What, what, or is there a crossover? What's the, you know, is it one out of 10 is incentive audits? Or what, what's the sort of volume we're looking at here? Have you got a view on that? I would count the number of Microsoft customers uh, with, I mean, we had a customer with 56 seats who was getting one of these letters. If you want to know, the, my best guess is it's equal to the number of customers with a any kind of a business relationship with Microsoft. They're, they're going after everybody. A few years ago, uh, a colleague of mine who uh, was at uh, somebody I knew at Microsoft said, yeah, we just sent out a letter that we're going to audit over the next two years, 30,000 uh, customers in the corporate space in the US. Well, guess how many of those there are in the United States? 30,000. So every single one of them is going to get at least one audit touch, and some of the and, and that corporate space can include some fairly small companies. This is a new way of doing business, and frankly, I think it, um, since these are rarely 
what shall we say, happy engagements, Microsoft is generating a huge amount of hostility uh, by doing this. And in some cases, they are really burning bridges. Uh, yeah, exactly. Customers I mean, walk away from this saying, the less, if, if I never have to talk to these guys again, that would be great. What would you suggest that we look at to avoid working with them ever again? So, you know, yeah, it, it's good for your short term, uh, keeping Wall Street happy in terms of long term customer relationships. It's really toxic. Yeah, if you're a small organization and Microsoft want to go in and audit you, I mean, the benefits of Microsoft auditing a small organization financially have got to be small. But more importantly, like you were saying, Paul, they'll burn the bridges with the customer. That customer will then look elsewhere for any other alternative other than to work with Microsoft. Yes, it, it sets up a very uh, an adversarial relationship with the vendor. I suppose the other side of this argument is um, if you're going to be receiving these, one of the, one of the main issues I have about it is very very often it's not clear that you're actually being audited. You're just kind of being asked, "Oh, do you you know we are here to help you with the with the SAM assessment?" But I would say to all organisations, the takeaway here to insist that any of your VARs sign NDAs that specifically exclude the sharing of information. And this is a very quick way of finding out the specific clause basically saying you do not share this information with any of the vendors. And quite quickly you'll find out then if they're not allowed to share the information with Microsoft, there will be a dramatic drop in uh, these uh, stealth audits for want of a better word. Um, there'll be certainly one uh, simple solution to a lot of this. So, so what would at what point would you put in that clause? What's, uh... Just your standard NDA, uh, a specific clause saying uh, information is not shared without the express uh, permission of the organisation to any and all third party, yeah, including uh, your, your partners and resellers. Yeah, I, I even and heard the other... and, and bring it and bring it to the attention of any var or account and account manager that comes in the door to you. Say you have signed this. Before we start this conversation, are you clear on this? And it'll certainly surface any, uh, how do you say, uh, conflicts of interest. Yeah. I, I even heard the measure the other day of somebody saying that you're not even allowed to take the data off of site, let alone share it, which I don't know how practical that is, but, you know, it just it's, it's a defense, isn't it? I, well, we actually recommended that to a very large uh, company we were doing in Europe that they quite literally, we were trying to figure out how to, meet the demands of the auditor without exposing. So the first thing we said is you can run our scripts and we will provide the information. You're not running your own. And the second one was, and you can inspect them on a, in the offices of the client on their equipment uh, at your leisure and at your length, but it doesn't leave the site. And uh, it, it certainly works. It slows things down, but uh, now you're switching it around and making it a challenge for them. So they're, what you'll find is then the auditors are much more incentivized to close quickly and uh, to take the stress away from you. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, uh, just to get this clear, though, so if I was doing that, I wanted to insert that clause, it would be on the signature of the new EA or whatever uh, as I was embarking on it. Paul can comment that you wouldn't typically put into the EA now that that's a Microsoft document. This would be in your NDA while dealing with any VAR or third party. I see, I see. Sorry, sorry. Because sorry, when they come to you, they have to, you will be expressly forbidding them from sharing any, any and all information collected during the project. Yeah. Uh, that would be an independent thing from your Microsoft EA. No right. such clause could be easily added there. 
Microsoft, I, I heard, I think last year at the Microsoft Partner Conference, you know, the guy who's in, in charge of this for Microsoft in the US simply said, if I pay, I want the data. If it's, if it's a so-called free engagement, um, Microsoft expects, Microsoft is paying and they expect to get, they expect to see the data. So um, Pierce is right. You can, you should be able to sort out. And if any of these partners have come in on free engagements, sign the NDA saying that they won't share this data, I, I'd, I'd be suspicious. Just, it's just probably worth the, pointing out that it, Microsoft aren't the only ones. This the pay pay for the data is across the board. It's IBM and Oracle as well. They wouldn't be unique in that regard. Yeah. But Microsoft's who we're talking about now. Well, I, I was uh, over at uh, Steve Russman's uh, IBSMA uh, Auditors Summit, which was a, an event specifically for the audit community. And it was all about data to drive deals. It wasn't really about compliance. It was just let's collect, you know, with a, if you look at the top 10 vendors in the world, they all have pretty lousy relationships with their procurement teams of the customer, typically. And so they're auditing them to get the right data to drive the next deal. And that's that, you know, it's just data to drive deals. That's what it's all about. Uh, to, to the point that the there's a guy at um, networking meeting this week at the BCS uh, from Softcat, uh, Matt Ward, who said that for every pound that Microsoft puts into the incentive program, they get 28 back. And I think Softcat are doing a lot of those in the UK. So that who who that's very lucrative uh, return for any any business, isn't it? Twenty eight to one. There are a couple of things that I would I would say here, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this more. But when uh, you know we we tip, we generally are able to save customers money, and in some cases very substantial sums of money. And I always tell them, okay, here's the first thing you're going to do. You are going to put together a SAM program. This is this is the first dollar you save from here has to go into that, and in some cases it may be the first million dollars because you're a really big company and you should probably have like five people doing this. And you go back to a fairly simple idea, which is, gee, you're running a business, you should know what resources you own. Should be you should be able to count them. You should have copies of all your contracts. You should be able to trace everything. You should, you know, you should know all of this. Licensing for software is just a new area that that you know many people haven't built up an infrastructure for it, or they they basically assume that I have an EA, I can toss all this to the wind. I don't care whether you have the sweetest EA out there. You still need a SAM team. And uh, I think there was some other recent research, maybe this was related to the IDC paper, which indicated that if you have a mature SAM uh, in your organization, your risk of even being audited in the first place is much lower. And I've, I've run into people like that. I ran into a, a rare occurrence of a guy who could tell me in an instant what software was licensed on every single device in his organization, PC, mobile, whatever. And he said, I can answer any question in two hours. I usually make them wait a day or two but for the answer, but they don't call was, me very often. Was that not, I think that was Express Metrics did some research about that, didn't they? That, and and we'll, I'll share the link in the show notes that said, uh, it was a basic stat that said the, the uh, audit response versus the SAM program, as you stated, and uh, it's quite it's quite distinct. Yeah, uh, Paul's very right there. I think there's possibly uh, a degree of naivety. It's probably the wrong word, but it's the best I can use to describe it. Within 
big IT that you get your EA or whatever your uh, global agreement is and you're done. It's not. You've got a, when you've got an asset worth many, many millions of dollars, you have to be investing some of that, a portion. I know Gardner would be suggesting 3 to 5%, but certainly a, a significant portion needs to be invested to protect that asset. Like you're not going to buy a luxury car and not change the oil every 10,000 miles. And that's, that's kind of the view they need to take here. You need to service and maintain this substantial asset. And to be honest, you ain't going to be getting an EA unless you're spending a million dollars a year. Or sorry, certainly you're going to have a good, a good spend. My point is then a constant investing in maintaining and protecting those assets. And Paul's quite right. Where we have, uh, we have plenty of examples between us of where companies have put the time in, they just don't get audited because their the VARs and Microsoft know it's a waste of time. Or they know that the pickings are going to be so lean, why bother? Go on to something, go down, move on to the guy who doesn't have a SAM program or who hasn't bothered to do an inventory of his estate in the last two years because the, the business is easier to get. So it's that kind of simple. Yeah. And, and uh, th this that's an important point right. that, that uh, Pierce uh, made as well. And in, in talking about that, you know, 28 to one ratio of uh, how much they make versus what they spend. Um, that's because they, they, they don't pick people who have a mature SAM process uh, for that kind of thing. And this is an important thing to emphasize to people. You know, it's extremely different, difficult to be uh, perhaps impossible in some cases, given how they may just simply interpret the rules differently than you to be 100% compliant on this. But you know what? If you are 102%, if you are 100, probably if you, well, officially it's 5%. If you're that close and Microsoft knows it, they're not going to spend the money. They're, they're going to, as Pierce said, there's a lot of low hanging fruit out there. There are a lot of people who have no idea what they own don't understand any licensing rules so they'll go after them so it's a it's a good defense it does not have to achieve perfection it does have to uh, provide you though it has to be good it has to be you you have to be able to answer the any question and have a plausible explanation for how things are licensed and if you have that capability and you can pull numbers uh, frequently so that you have up-to-date data all the time um, you can reduce the risk of an audit in the first place. So, David, I think you're going to say something. Yeah, no, I just think that um, what's been said just highlights the importance of having a good, a good and dedicated SAM estate. I mean, that could even be the tagline for trying to implement a SAM estate in that the fact that you can save a hell of a lot of money on your Microsoft licensing, even if you have an enterprise agreement. It's, it still baffles me how some people don't have any dedicated SAM professionals in their organization. I had one customer, for example, who said, uh, yeah, Microsoft came in, did an inventory. We put 800 man hours into it and they owe us money. So at the end of, you know, I, I, the point is they were fully compliant. They were over licensed after it took them 800 man hours though to discover that. That's, you know, that's a half time SAM person. Why don't you, hire a full-time SAM person and uh, avoid the problem in the first place. So we, we can come on to the uh, specific resources that organizations might need to, to do this properly and manage an EA or a select agreement or whatever, but uh, could we, you've mentioned uh, about um, Active Directory perhaps being out of date and then showing false number of employees, but what, are the, what would you say the top three things that trip people up when they do 
get caught short. So, so what the you know technological or or licensing issues that typically trip people up? The top one certainly I encounter is where devices are virtualized, and this would be SQL Server. The main reason is that it's just so damn expensive, and if you get your licensing wrong around that, it can be a very substantial bill for you. And uh, this can be either within clusters, and it's less of a problem than in the Oracle and IBM world, but it's still quite significant, particularly with the license move to 2012. That's going to become a very significant issue going forward. Uh, we spoke about Active Directory, just taking that at face value was just wrong. It's good to help you discover and to find out where all your uh, devices are. It is not a fair reflection of what you're actually using. You'll also have it generally, your CALs will always give you problems, so you need to be quite clear on that you're not falling into the multiplexing trap where you've got one machine uh, out in your estate being used by many users, mainly because that can be used turned against you if it's found out. If you're saying that's three or four, they might say, no, no, that's we're rating that at 20 or 30. And uh, that's, a, again, a very big deal for you. And of course, the newest, I guess, uh, area of concern is going to be your mobile devices. If those devices are managed devices, and the definition of managed device is pretty vague, uh, it's getting slightly better. But if that can be proven that they're managed devices, you are liable for licensing on those. And unless you're in a, in a 365 agreement, that can be a very big problem for you, or if it's device-based licensing you've got. Uh, they'd be certainly the main ones I'd be, looking, I'd be cautioning uh, people about. You, Paul? I wouldn't add a lot more to that. I think Chris did a good job of summarizing. I have AD and virtualization and BYOD on my list. Um, another issue is, is the one of production state, uh, where you know. Good point. Yeah. The uh, this whether something is actually used for production or not. Um, I think the conversions, the the core conversions. Uh, are going to be a huge problem a few years from now. The problem I see here is that Microsoft comes in and even a, a customer's reseller, and I'd hope the reseller knows a customer well enough to, to do a better job than this, but unfortunately, I don't see that happening. Um, they simply assume the default conversion. How many servers do you have? We have X number, you have this many processor. Okay, we're gonna give you four cores for every processor license, bingo, sign the agreement, renew at four cores per going forward. You you are on day one of your renewal, you're out of compliance because you're running on servers with six cores or with 10 cores or with 12 cores and they didn't get counted. Customers, I my guess is that some customers are going to get hit with some enormous, and I'm talking enormous true ups and uh, extra payments because they just signed the agreement unaware that uh, they, you know, simply didn't have enough of these licenses. I'm typically finding that the real number in, uh, I mean, I've done I've done this analysis for customers, so I have a good idea of what the numbers are. They're generally running around six and a half to seven and a half cores per processor in the, in the engagements I've been involved in. So these customers are basically under licensed by 50% on one of the most expensive products that Microsoft sells. And that's going to come out at your real time. Paul, that's a very good, in terms of a tip, in terms of negotiation, that's probably something that could be, I guess we should be recommending to the listeners, that if uh, the default is 4 or 4.5, you're offered. But if you can very easily demonstrate, which I'm sure you've done, Paul, many times, that the true figure is going to be 7, 7.5 anyway, 
that's the opening bid and you can actually use this in your negotiations with the Microsoft because you're saying I'm going to be out of I'm going to be out of compliance immediately so why would I sign this agreement yes uh, of course to some extent Microsoft wants is happy to give you those cores they're going to get the money one way or another they want you to renew software assurance uh, on them and so Microsoft can you know if if you if the real number is double the default number and when you renew software assurance the real number for software assurance will be double what you were paying in the past so you know it's uh, microsoft should not be and i haven't generally found them hostile and saying no you can't have cores for that but then if you say well you know i'll take the course but i won't renew software assurance now you're in a mare's nest of very complicated licensing rules and core equivalency blocks and all this kind of stuff, which is, you know, I find it irritating because it is simply a money grab. It has nothing to do with the functionality of Microsoft products. I'm not getting any additional capabilities out of this and so on. All they're doing is throwing barbed wire around the exit from software assurance for SQL Server to make sure that you get hurt on your way out. And uh, I, I just find that objectionable. Uh, so, so depending on when you listen to this podcast, we, we are at the end of May. So we're in city season in terms of uh, both Oracle and Microsoft in terms of uh, new agreements being struck for their year ends and so and so forth. And I'm sure you, you gentlemen on the, on the call are very busy with your practices helping clients in that respect. I'm just thinking if, if a... If a somebody's out there they're just about to sign a new ea and they think right this time we're going to get it right we're going to put a sam program in place and we're going to monitor this and and manage this asset as you've suggested on this call already what if and they they had a magic wand and they got the senior management buying to do the right thing and the budget and so on and so forth what should they be doing so you said that they ought to have a sam program What, what what needs to be managed I, I wouldn't discourage them from doing that. I think they should be realistic at this point that their SAM uh, investment is not going to provide probably any short-term advantage for this EA renewal. It's too late to do that. It will be useful, though. I, I would still recommend if, if, you, if you don't have SAM personnel in place and you have an agreement coming up, I'd, hire, I'd still hire them. I want them to go through this. I want them to understand how painful this is. I want them to get an idea of uh, a lot of the cut and thrust of the emails that go back and forth between Microsoft and the client. Uh, Microsoft saying, oh, you have to do this, or the partner saying that you have to do this. Uh, yeah, I'll be blunt. A lot of that information from Microsoft is not correct. Um, we had one customer whose account team, thankfully, basically they were able to ditch where the account team in, I counted eight consecutive emails in which there was not a shred of truth. But customers uh, don't know that. And so, you know, you, you need that experience. You need to be able to push back. So, and it's unfortunate. I have been able, I've got some customers who are desperately in need of this. And they say, well, you know, the EA is at the end of our budget year. And so we don't have any budget, any headcount for Sam. And I'm, I'm really disappointed with that because it would be tremendously beneficial even if you were just a newcomer to get dropped into this boiling cauldron uh pick up a few scars you know and uh have some idea of what this is because you need to understand the intensity and the kind of games that are played during this time i think uh, i'm speaking to a large uh, uk-based company and he was saying 
they had uh, it's, it's like a blue chip company that you would recognize and it was uh they had a team of three people in their sam team and they saved uh 10 million in the first year just on microsoft alone so you know that that's the roi we're talking about isn't it so you got R- R- three the cost of three people whatever that might be uh versus 10 million that's you know it's a bit of a no-brainer really and one of the things that microsoft is coming back with in many cases is well if you don't renew sa your management costs are going to go up you know it's going to be difficult for you to manage this and i have my reaction is twofold number one i agree number two why in the world don't you have management you you have to have management folks this is not a Basically, what Microsoft is saying, if you pay us enough money, we'll ignore your incompetence in managing your licenses for now. We'll get to tax you again and again and again and again, but for this time, we'll overlook this and we'll just say, tell you what, throw another million dollars in the pot and we'll call it a wash. I guess you've got to have a short-term and a long-term game when it comes to resourcing for Sam. The short-term one is going to be, if you've got an EA coming up in the next uh, three months, uh, renewal, which at that point, you really have to just focus, where can you focus your attentions? And to be frank, whether you want to use the services of Paul or I or somebody else entirely, there is tremendous value in the short term to bringing in a licensed advisor because, well, one, they'll have the knowledge immediately to give you uh, to give you benefits, but also um, the payoff would be a, would be very tangible because chances are you're going, you've already received a quote from your bar, you know what you're going to be paying, and you'll be able to see how much the savings are going to be when uh, when you get a little bit of help. As I said, go wherever your uh, your preferred option is on that. No matter what you do, they will deliver um, immediate business benefit. Long term, really, you got to ask yourself. Um, well, I guess how much you wish to invest in it, Gardner would have you saying 3 or 4%. Ultimately, putting some SAM program in place is going to be helpful. Even if you said to yourself, let's try and get an effective license position rather than waiting to the year end, let's do it every six months. And then as we get better, let's do it every three months. You might want to focus on your servers first, then in parallel roll out your desktops. And keep in mind here, you don't need perfection. Paul was making the point earlier as well. Reasonably good is good enough, and um, getting coverage of 60-70% is actually probably enough to protect you in the short term, um, and that would be certainly where I'd uh, suggest organizations um, look to start. There's a lot of overhead in, involved in keeping track of things like Microsoft and Oracle and understanding all the changes and understanding what the contracts say and this kind of thing. You you could hire somebody to do that. I will tell you, it's a full-time job. It's a full-time job for me just to keep up with the rules. And uh, so bringing that in-house is it would be great because you you would have a, uh, a much better sense. Uh, you know, you can adapt it to your own requirements. I think, Paul, you make a very good point there, and it's a, it's a new market that's actually open. Well, I'm seeing more of it certainly in Europe. And that essentially is outsourcing your SAM. Now, I don't mean outsource the responsibility, but outsource the administration, because the responsibility will always remain with the company. But some of this is quite specialized and similar to outsourcing your DBA function or your network administration or even your desktop support. Um, there's a growing market, and I would be 
uh, for organizations who don't have a SAM program right now, they should seriously look at it. And that is just going and getting, um, getting your SAM outsourced, the administration of it, and having companies come in and checking on a quarterly, monthly basis, maybe even running the tools for you, um, where your own team, maybe your own in-house don't have the time or the expertise to keep up to speed on the latest developments in um, VMware, Microsoft, or Oracle licensing. So that is certainly another option that should be uh, considered by organizations. So, so we've we've done some um, research around managed service providers, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and you're absolutely right. There's, it's a definitely a um, growing market. But there's a couple of points. One is a lot of the reason that people are choosing a SAM managed service provider is not because they don't want to do it in-house necessarily. It's just because they can't get the right expertise. They just can't hire them or can't keep them and retain them or can't find them. And the other point is a managed service is a way of scaling or um, taking advantage of expertise, but it won't be a Band-Aid over bad data. So if, you know, the... A SAM managed service provider won't fix the missing data or the, or the missing sloppy processes that you have or or the issues that you have internally. They still need to be fixed regardless whether you do it or whether somebody else does it. You know, you can train your own people. It's entirely possible that they will. I hear that, the at least in the U.S., the SAM job market is going crazy. Uh, these people can, you know, if, if, you've, if you've got experience in this area, you can kind of write your own ticket which makes it tough to retain talent. And one of the things you lose with that is a lot of institutional memory about here's why we did this. Here's, you know, where did this concession in our EA come from? What was the point of that? Well, let me explain why we did that. You know, there was this situation. I mean, that that is irreplaceable knowledge and it's um, crucial to understanding your licensing position today. An outsourcer might do a better job of documenting a lot of that because they have to, you know, they might send somebody else in and they need to have the background. And uh, certainly they could, uh, you know, leverage that. And, it, and it's, you know, frankly, it's just good economics because somebody, for example, like yourself, Paul, or somebody that's a, a real specialist on Oracle can service lots of different clients at the same time rather than being in one account. So it's just pure economics. It's good. makes sense. Um, for that yeah. person to keep up to speed on things. Okay, so if if you were if you were um, about to do a reconciliation or about about to give some advice to people around Microsoft, you're about to do the big amalgamation of uh, advice and guidance for a customer. What does good data look like? What what does uh, and, and I know we we probably have to keep this general because if you can if if a customer's embarked on a full Microsoft stack on desktop and data center, there's probably 20, 30, 40 different points you might want to collect. But just generally, what, what does good data look like and good uh, preparation look like when you're going into an EA um, uh, settlement or agreement? When, it, when you're entering an EA, I suppose, a negotiation, there's essentially uh, two sides of the equation you need to have in order. And the first is your deployment, what you got out there. And that's both for desktop and for servers. And the other side, have you got all your agreements and contracts uh, together and uh, fully understood? I guess in terms of good data, when we're looking at it, the first thing is how we got completeness and what the source is. So you've got tools out there like SCCM and on the desktop side, but it could be Altiris, it could be um, Landis, it could be Arab, it can be a variety of tools. You're really the main question I ask is how complete is that data? And I'll ask the network administrator: Is this agent on every machine? 
and uh, what's your confidence level and what does he base that on? And it's, it is subjective, but to be honest, because many of these tools are also used for patch management, uh, you have a pretty good idea of your information. Then on the data center side, that's a little more complicated. And the key bits there really are, is, again, what's the tool? It may be map, it may be something else. And the critical part of that is, do you know what's virtualized and where it is? And do you know what's been clustered? And where's the, where is your DR and uh, I guess your failover? What's the strategy around that? And again, can they give you that information and how confident are they? And once you've got those pieces together, you've got your deployment, you've got a pretty good understanding. And there's a side, uh, you'll get your MLS from Microsoft, but very often that needs to be reviewed with great care, particularly if you're a global organization with multiple business units. Just getting that picture together can be quite challenging. And again, the asset test is going to be how complete is it and can they demonstrate that it's complete? In other words, if they've got 15 business units, are 15 business units represented in that data and so forth and putting them together then. So they'd be the kind of uh, little tells I'd be looking for. Paul, you? I'd confirm those uh, points. Uh, the data, you know, needs to be clean. It does not, it should not contain any uh, unlicensable or uh, products that uh, don't, don't require that. I like to see naming conventions that are enforced consistently for things like server infrastructure so that I can tell right away, is this a test machine? Is this a development machine? Is this a production machine? Where is it? What workloads is it kind of designed for? You know, is it part of a SQL cluster, for example? Uh, I'd like to, you know, have a way to easily aggregate uh, licenses that can be covered by a processor uh, license or, or by licensing the host, the physical machine and so on. So that's uh, kind of critical. Uh, please know how many computers you have. We've run into situations, especially with global companies. Many of these global companies are, you know, in, in industries where there's a lot of acquisitions going on. And we've run into cases where yeah, we know that those guys have servers. We just don't have the domain password. We just end up with data that's not complete. Like, uh, yeah, this this data includes thirty percent of your your server infrastructure. That's that's simply not acceptable. Even ninety five, and you know, we'd like to see ninety eight percent, if possible, uh, uh, integrity in these kinds of numbers. Paul's making some good points. There are some techniques, I guess, we use to try and verify the data. And naming conventions is a good one. Or also just checking the names of the virtual machines. Do they match the actual machine names that you've given us as well? And if we find half of them are missing, we've, we get, you know, you can get concerned about the completeness of the data. Not, you know, virtual machines don't disappear too quickly. Also, you're going to, it's just a matter of being able to verify the data from different sources. You know, if you can, talk to IT security and get their list and then compare that against the network administrators and then compare that against uh, procurement, you then build more confidence. There's no getting away from a great tool, of course, if you can scan the network, but um, that's not always available. Okay. So thank you, guys. I'm just thinking uh, we ought to wrap things up fairly soon. Final points from you is uh, I'd, I'd be great to see, uh, to, to hear about any recommended resources uh, that you use for staying up to 
up to date on things in their Microsoft licensing space. What, what would you recommend to listeners in, if they want to start learning about changes and new developments? What's the source for you? I put my focus mostly on contract documents. Uh, so this is the product list, the product use rights, and so on. Uh, it's very, uh, it's disturbing how many things about licensing changes get uh, mentioned in logs or blogs. Um, Microsoft has no no decent process for even informing customers about licensing changes. Um, there are times when I've done file compares on, you know, every time a new document comes out, do a file compare, and I discover all kinds of things that are not marked as change, but they they have been changed. They just, at the top, you know, where it says here are the changes in this document, they're not listed. Uh, to me, this is just un un unacceptable. The notion that every single one of Microsoft's customers has to have somebody scan the product list every month and occur every quarter to figure out and to be able to identify language that's changed, sometimes it's just a word. I mean, at one point, you know, all of a sudden the word devices showed up behind Windows Intune as a way of saying other kinds of things aren't there. Well, if you didn't do a file compare, that could easily elude you. So at any rate, I, I don't put a lot of trust in white papers. Um, they are not part of your contract. And to me, this is an important issue in dealing with Microsoft and with resellers too. If they come back and say, well, read this white paper, I say, no, I'm reading the contract. You show me where in the contract it says what you are claiming. Uh, because you and I signed this contract. Uh, it says this, this agreement consists of these various items. It didn't include white papers. It doesn't include web pages, although now most Microsoft agreements do include a lot of web pages, uh, links built into them. Still, um, it's a monumental task to keep track of this. I don't have any uh, other kind of uh, LinkedIn. I think the LinkedIn sites are very good for bringing uh, you know, us experts together, uh, debating, disagreeing, etc. I'm not sure that non-experts get a huge amount out of that, but it is, uh, people are, I, I'm willing to help people. Um, and, and Pierce's and, you know, most of us who are involved in that. So that, that's a, I think that's probably one of the better resources right now because it lets you ask your question, not just sort of sit through esoteric debates by the, by the experts. I'd agree with Paul there as well on LinkedIn. Keep in mind that the, most of the people on LinkedIn in the SAM groups get a kick out of uh, helping other people because the, in some regards we're hackers. We like to uh, find the nuances and to uh, figure out how to reduce license costs. So for us it's just a challenge when these questions come up. In terms of the other resources, um, I, like to, I do like to keep an eye on the uh, Microsoft's just their uh, if you look for anything on an enterprise agreement, just to see the changes coming up and have a, a look through them. The short white papers are quite good, and we can, I can send a link over after the show here. Great. So I think we'll wrap things up there. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. I found that very useful and very interesting. If you have any questions around Microsoft licensing, please either find us on Twitter, uh, at itemreview. Uh, you can ask a question in our LinkedIn group or please ask via our contact page on itassetmanagement.net on the ITM Review website, and we'll be pleased to help if we can. Uh, until next time, thank you. Thank you.